Matthew 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. All right, good morning. All right, so uh, verse 8 today. I'll go ahead and uh, narrow this thing down. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Um, Today we're going to talk about purity, what exactly that is. Um, Some things that you might think it is or have been raised being taught it was, and then what it actually was in the first century, in the mind of Christ, and the people before Jesus, the Israelites, um, because there's sort of this progression, stuff was going somewhere, and, uh, and there's sort of this peak where these people are working with this definition, and then it peaks, and then Jesus, at the right time, takes that word, flips it upside down, and does something new with it. So we're going to talk about, uh, we're gonna talk about that. Um, we're going to talk about laws and, and, and purity and holiness and what all of this is about. Um, because this is a pretty heavy statement, and uh, it kind of makes things seem a little impossible, doesn't it? So, uh, so let's pray, and then we'll talk about it. Father, thank you for this place, for this room, for the people that you've gathered here. I ask that you uh, would calm our hearts and our spirits, that uh, all of the things that are calling and waving at us for our attention that they would fade into the background, we would affirm that they exist and they would push them aside so that we can pick them up later and uh, hopefully have a new perspective on how to deal with things. Um, Expand our minds this morning as it pertains to the things of you and ourselves. Um, Allow us to look at something from a new angle. Allow us to grab a new way of of seeing. Uh, Speak through me. Allow me to remember the things that I've studied. This week, allow me to communicate clearly, um, allow the words to, to flow smoothly, and uh, allow for all of us to sort of be present here together as we work through these ideas, um, and help us to respond adequately with whatever you have for us. In your name, amen. Okay, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so the question after you read something like this is, well then, then who gets to see God, right? Because are any of us pure in hearts? Um, are any of us good enough? Are any of us perfect enough? Who, who is it that gets to open their eyes and say, well, I've done it. My heart is pure. There's God. Um, and so that's what we're going to talk about because um, there's really two different, two different definitions, working definitions of purity that we actually use on a daily basis. Um, there is... There is the first thing, which would be the religious sort of definition. When we speak of religious purity or spiritual purity... We tend to think of sinlessness. We tend to think of um, being without fault, without flaw. Uh, We tend to think of being holy and just right, like good people that never make mistakes, somebody who's pure. That's what we tend to think about. Um, And so that tends to be our working religious definition. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying it is our working definition of of, of sort of spiritual purity. But then we have a totally different way of using the word purity when we use it in sort of a secular context. Um... Uh, for instance, we would talk about uh, children as being pure and innocent, don't we? We talk about um, 
sort of um, pure rainforests. Um, we talk about so, like pure gold, uh, pure silver, pure precious metals. Um, we talk about um, people who are when maybe they're starting a business and they have pure motives at the beginning. They, they, they have this idea, this can help people, this can change the world. And so they set off with pure motives to start something. Um, and so our actual definition, um, there's sort of our working definition of purity in real life um, and our, work, our definition of sort of um, religious purity, as, as much as they sound the same, they're not really the same because, okay, so I'm going to use this as an illustration of, of how we define it. So purity starts off where sort of, sort of a pure glass of water, pure spring water pours into the glass and, and it's marketed as uh, pure and natural. What does that mean? That means nothing's been added to it, right? And so... If you take that idea and you apply it to everything else I've just said in the, as, as far as it goes with secular purity, um, you'll see that our running definition of purity is things have a starting point and they are pure. Um, a child is born. Um, a forest is found. Uh, a water comes out of a spring. Um, someone decides to start something new to help people. And from the starting point, it's pure. But what happens is we add things to it, and as we add things to it, it becomes impure. So a child, as they're growing up, as you add sort of things to their mind, as they are exposed to things, um, they begin to be less and less talked about as a pure and innocent child. There comes a certain age where you kind of like, well, that was a bratty thing to do. Where'd you learn that? And that's our question. Where did you learn that? Like, that wasn't in there, and now it's in there. Who did you spend time with that you can no longer spend time with? Uh, and so we're adding things. And then you have the entrepreneur who starts this business. At the beginning, it's pure. And it's like, I want to help people. I want to do this good thing. Or an artist, even. I live for the art. Um, and then at some point, you realize um, you either need money desperately because uh, you don't have any. Um, and you can't keep doing this thing if you don't. So you have to like kind of sell out. And it's got to become this corporate thing. Or... Um, it's, it blows up, it gets big, and then suddenly all these other options are available to you. Money and riches, fame and, uh, you know, freely traded public stocks. And, and these things are added to it. And so now it's no longer this pure thing that it was before. Um, rainforests, you know, we move into them. Oh, it's so beautiful. I want to live in something beautiful. And we move in and then suddenly it's not so beautiful anymore, not too long later. So the idea of purity Really, the working idea of purity in the secular mind is this. Things start off a certain way, and you add something to it, and it becomes impure. And we've somehow separated that from our religious definition of purity, but we shouldn't have, because we actually, when we look at the working definition of, of, of purity, uh, the word pure is this word katharos. Everyone say katharos. All right, way to go. Um, so if you're going to find the definition of an ancient word, what you're going to have to do is say, okay, here's... Here's the word katharos. I can look it up uh, in sort of a Greek dictionary, um, and that's going to give me a definition. But how was it used? And when you find out how it's used, you see different things. First off, you see um, there's one instance, uh, several instances of it used um, to describe uh, an army full of disciplined soldiers who do not want to be anything else but soldiers. In other words, you take this army. This happens in scriptures at one point. You kind of purge the army of all the people who are afraid. Um, so you kind of say, are any of you afraid to fight? Let's be honest. And some of them say, I'm afraid to fight. Go home. 
uh, and there's others. Um, you, uh, you know, are there any of you that like, you can't wait when we get home, you can't wait to do like, like you want to start this other business and you're really just here to get the money to move on to the next thing. Like, you're not really in this to be a soldier and to defend your country or whatever. And people would raise their hand, and they would say, we're just going to go ahead and let you go. And the point is, you're taking all these things away until you have this army full of, of soldiers who are there because this is what they want to do. They're not afraid to do this. This is their calling. And so in the ancient world, this is how you kind of see this word used. And there's other ways that it was used as well. It was used to describe wheat and corn that had been sifted by the wind. And we've talked about this. You put it all in like this giant stone circle and you grab something, you throw it in the air and the wind blows and it carries all the chaff away and the heavy stuff, the corn or the, or the wheat falls onto the ground. And what you're left with is one ingredient and it's just the ingredient that you want. So you see a pattern of how this word is used? There's one more way that it's used. Um, and this is the one that gets, um, that we, we tend to take and, and run with it the wrong direction. Uh, it's used to describe a cloth that had been washed until all of the dirt and soil had been pulled out of it. And so we say, uh, yeah, so to be pure uh, means to be sinless, right? It means for everything that's bad to be gone. You're missing the point of the definition. The point of the definition is not that it's been washed clean. It's not about cleanliness. It's about the removal of things that are not that thing. It's about the separation because of two, of two different ingredients, soil, cloth, two things being mixed together. And when you pull them apart we find katharos. It's not that it's been washed clean. Um, the definition of this word has to do with things being one thing, one mindset among a group of soldiers, um, one ingredient, a pile of corn with no chaff, cloth that's just cloth and no dirt. Um, so the, an accurate definition of the word that Jesus uses here for pure, katharos, is one thing, a single ingredient, unmixed. Uh, this is the definition that we need to work with. This is the best way to describe this. Now, um, you can follow this word back a long ways. It has ancient roots in the scriptures. Uh, not this word, but this idea. Um, because there were, there were all kinds of things called Jewish purity laws. And when you looked at Jewish purity laws, um, there's a common theme. Uh, if you think of purity like katharos, the purity laws take on this whole new meaning, and it kind of helps you understand what was going on in the Old Testament with all of the laws in the Torah. So you start off, and you see, um, you see God calling these people out and saying, hey, uh, you, are, you are going to be a people called out. You're going to be separate. You're going to be one thing, and the rest of the world is going to be these other things, and you're going to be one particular thing. And you're not going to mix your world, your nation with other nations. You're not going to mix the direction you're heading in with the direction that other people are heading in. Um, you're not going to mix your God with other gods. You're not going to mix the thing that you're living for with the things that other people are living for. Um, and so we're going to have a, 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 a pile of laws, and every one of these laws are going to be th- sort of ritual things that you're going to do every single day that are going to remind you that your goals are not the same as everyone else's goals in the world. You are separate and you are different. And so what we, what we end up with is all these Jewish purity laws on mixing things. And this is fascinating when you see this because there's laws about not mixing seeds in your garden. And you're like, well, that's a random thing. Why wouldn't I be able to plant like two different things in my garden? Um, it's not that it's wrong. It's that you're mixing things. And everything the Jewish people did was a reminder not to mix things. Be one thing. Focus. Everything should be focused on being one thing. Um, you don't mix the threads in your clothing. 
You don't, uh, you don't mix animal products. In, order, there, there's, in other words, there's certain animals that we, that we eat. There's certain animals that we don't eat. Um, and when you eat those animals, uh, you're going to eat like one, one sort of kind of that animal. In other words, uh, there's specific commands for Passover not to boil a calf in its mother's milk. Uh, there's specific commands not to drink milk with meat. We're going to do one thing, and we're going to do that one thing. And then when that's done, we're going to do this other thing, and we're going to do that thing. And that's it. Um, you don't plow with two different kinds of animals. This is the phrase, unequally yoked together. Um, you're not going to set up a plow. I only have one cow, and I got a donkey. I'm going to put them together, and we're going to plow. No, when you plow, you're going to use one kind of animal. It's going to be donkeys. Did I say, or it's going to be cows. It's not going to be cow and a donkey. Um, because we're not going to unequally yoke things together because we're mixing. Um, so the idea of being unequally yoked is the idea of mixing of kinds. Um, and it gets really interesting because uh, uh, we, don't eat, we don't eat meat that's sacrificed to different gods. The reason they had all these laws on meat eating and all these things, there's certain animals you can't eat, there's certain animals you can't eat, um, and they're called unclean. Um, and the reason they're unclean is because those particular animals were, were already dedicated to other gods, local gods. Um, for instance, the pig was used in the worship of Tammuz, a pagan god, local in Babylon, um, where the people were in exile when they're sort of um, helping sort of write all this stuff down that had been passed down. Um, and so they're like, well, so the way this works is you would take a pig to the temple and you would sacrifice it and the Levite priests would eat that because that's how they lived. Uh, and in the ancient world, all sort of temples sort of work the same way. So you would take this pig to the pagan, Babylonian god, the temple of Tammuz, and, and, and you would sacrifice this pig, and the, and the priest would eat off of that. And he says, okay, so we're not going to eat this animal. We're not going to sacrifice this animal, so we're not going to eat it. Um, so we're going to have animals that are specifically dedicated to our god. And so everything that you sort of read in the book of Leviticus is about mixing. It's about helping these people get in a rhythm of... of of it's okay not to go in their direction. It's okay to reject those things. It's okay to stand against things which are difficult to stand against. It's okay to be unique and different in the world. Even the word holy is this word hagios, which means, which means different. So when they were saying God is holy, God is holy, what they're really saying is God is different. He's different than any other God that exists. Um, and so it's all very fascinating. Um, and so anything that was unmixed, that was one ingredient was considered pure uh, and was therefore good to be used. Anything that was mixed, um, anything that had more than one ingredient in it, two types of seeds in your garden, two types of threads in your, in your, in your clothing, um, oopsie, um, was any mixing of kinds, any multiple ingredients, was actually, the word there is abomination. It's an idea that says it's mixed. Um, and this word today has come to mean this huge, like, heavy, like, oh, it's abomination, as if it's like, Worse and worse and worse. But literally the word just means it's unclean, it's mixed. And our things are reminding us about one thing. Um, and so later on there's these different events where um, God comes to Peter in a vision and sort of like kills this thing and says, arise, eat these things. And then later on there's, these, there's Jesus actually in Luke 18 um, tells them, don't call anything clean unclean that I've called clean. And so he sort of cancels this thing. Um, and he sort of changes all these ideas um, because what he's doing is he's changing how they look at these things. Because all of these ritual purity laws about not mixing things um, were all centered upon the outside. And so 
um, when people, the idea was when people looked at you, they should see one thing, not many things. They see you worshiping one God, not many gods. They see you um, and everything you're doing, you're planting one thing, you're wearing one kind of thread. It was all symbolic of like one God. This is the only God we're going to follow. We're going to ignore the rest. And eventually, um, we're going to cast out even the beliefs of these gods. And the idea that now we embrace, there's only one. And it's this long progression, but the people should be looking at them and seeing. And so this was carried on well into the first century. And these people um, are carrying on this sort of external appearance of, of, of oneness, of one thing. And so they had all these laws that they would follow. There were rules about sex, about illnesses, about washing your hands, about doing the dishes, about where to put your shoes when you took them off. Um, and so and, uh, let's talk about the dishes. So y- you, would, you, would, you would wash your dishes, right? You would get this cup, and it would be your cup. And when you drank out of it, it would be shiny and clean. That's the cup you drink out of. The outside matters. People would look at it and say that. Well, that's a clean cup. Way to go. And you're like, thank you. And you'd put it on the shelf. Even today, if you go to um, um, in the Middle East and spend time with Hasidic Jewish families, um, they're gonna, they're just, they have dishes, and then they have a cabinet full of other dishes. And they're like, hey, no offense, but you're not Jewish. Don't touch these dishes. You're not allowed. These are our dishes. If you touch them, they become unclean. And then there's this whole process by which we cleanse them. And then we can't use them in our festivals and our ceremonies because they're set apart. They're different. And so there's this external thing where um, they had all these rules about how to wash your cup before you drank the wine. It was all about the outside of the cup. And then you would take this cloth and you'd put it over the cup before you poured wine into it. So it's sort of sifting the wine in case an insect was in there. Because if you drank an insect, those are forbidden. Those were used by the representation of ancient Egyptian gods, like especially things like uh, crickets and things, um, and grasshoppers and locusts, that uh, if you accidentally ate some like tiny locust or some gnat, uh, you were suddenly impure. Um, and so uh, all of these things were sort of how they lived. Now, so in the... In the oh, let's see, I don't want to skip steps here. I've got so many steps. Um... Okay, so I'm just going to read Luke 18 here and show you sort of an example of, of what happens. Because uh, in the ancient world, you had all these laws, and you're living by these laws. And what happens is um, people started adding laws. Because if you're really good at being pure, if you're really good at like keeping the laws, and then there's a bunch of other people that are really good at keeping laws, what are you going to do? I'm going to add a couple more laws, and I'm going to live by those laws. And then they're going to start living by those laws. And then you're going to add more, and they're going to add more. Because if it's all about the outside, you want everyone to see how pure and clean you are, how dedicated you are to one thing. And you end up with things like this, this guy standing up and praying in the temple. And he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And he points at this guy next to him. Or even like this guy right here. Um, The guy's like, what? What? I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, um, let's talk about fasting and tithing. Because he does. So fasting. uh, Fasting was something everyone knew. Fasting was something that only was required one day a year. Um, It was the Day of Atonement. You would fast and you would spend that time in prayer. And you would abstain from eating um, and it's very symbolic and it's meaningful and it was this thing that everyone would do corporately. And so this guy stands, oh, and not just that, when you fasted, um, it was just sort of, um, it was an external thing and so everyone would sort of paint their faces white um, to look sort of gaunt and pale like they were hungry. It was this, this collective, um, we're going hungry 
as a form of worship. So in, by the first century, so many things had been added to this that these guys are walking around with sort of white faces, painted really white, and they're wearing rags, and they're like bending over, holding their stomachs, walking around, and they're walking through the town square going, oh, I'm hungry because I'm fasting. I'm hungry. And this guy's like, oh, I do, I do that twice a week. And everyone knows you're only supposed to do it once a year. And then the tithe, everyone knows the laws on the tithe, the laws on the tithe were you give a tenth of your produce. Whatever you grow out of the ground, you give a tenth of that. And it simply has to do with um, giving your first fruits. It's symbolic that like it's a gift from God, so you give it back to God. And it helps the priest survive. And these guys turned it into this sort of public, public thing where they're keeping the outside of the cup clean. Uh, and instead of tithing from just their produce... They're like going through their spice rack, pulling out a 10% of all their spices, going through their clothing, 10% of their clothing, everything in their house. How much furniture I got? 10% of my furniture and get a saw and just cut a piece of your furniture and take it, take it on down there. 10% of literally everything, and this is what they were doing. Uh, and so it's all about the exterior catharos. It's all about the exterior one thing. Wow, everything in their life, everything is focused on one thing. God. And that's amazing. And, and you look at them, and it's, it's hard not to envy people who everything in their life on the outside appears um, to be centered on God. Um, the problem is, Jesus knows what they're doing. And he understands um, that they're just cleansing the outside of the, everything. They're making the outside of everything about, about one thing. He knows the inside is different. And so Jesus has... The guts to actually, as, as, a, as a rabbi does, he stands up and says, you claiming to be one thing, you look like you're one thing, um, but you're not, because it's not just the outside, there's an inside to you. Um, and so Jesus stands up and he says, he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. See, if, if, if Jesus had said, blessed are the pure, for they shall see God, everyone would have been like, of course. We know, we look around, we see these guys, they're very pure. And they're going to see God. And they do see God on a regular basis. They have visions and all these things that they tell us of course the pure see God. And Jesus doesn't say that if he stops there, it means one thing, but he keeps going. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so what he's saying is inside one ingredient. And then he, he has this way of talking to them to drive this point home. So let's look at some of the passages of Jesus where he talks about purity and your insides being more than one thing. There's one in Matthew 6 where he says, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. And he calls them out. He says, I know what you're doing. You're wearing it on the outside. And everyone can see that you're fasting. But in your heart, you're not. And then he, he has this other passage in Matthew 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law, and you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish and then the outside will be clean. So there's this word he keeps using for them. And I'm going to underline it here, right there. Hypocrites, right there. Hypocrites. Um, we all use this word regularly. Um, Shane Claiborne actually tweeted this morning, and I retweeted it because it was brilliant. He said, people always say the church is full of hypocrites. But the fact is, it's not. There's plenty of room for you, too. <laughs> um, anyways. Um, but the idea of hypocrites, we know what that is. But it actually has ancient roots um, uh, the word is hypocritus, uh, and uh, hippo means under, under and, and crinane is the other root word, and it means separate. So there's, um, it's, it's actually the word that the ancient uh, Greeks would use to describe play actors who 
um, who would hold these masks and they would put them over their face and they would dance out on the stage and everyone would say, oh, they're that character. That's fascinating. And they would, and, but they wouldn't necessarily know who's under the mask because there's a whole bunch of actors. Um, and so, um, but the, the actual idea, the word here is that the outside is hiding the inside. So Jesus is actually telling them, you're not one, you're two. You're impure. You're an abomination. You're two things. You're not honest about who you are. You're putting a mask in front of your face, and all anyone can see is the mask. But I can see past the mask, and I see in your hearts, and I know there's something else in there. I know the person you're pretending to be is not the person that you actually are. Now, sometimes we read the words of Jesus, and we assume um, he's being harsh and brutal with them. That's actually not how I see this passage. Uh, When I read this passage... um, He says, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. Um, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the the dish, but inside you're full of greed and all these things. And then he says, you're blind. If you would first clean the inside, the outside would be pure. So it's not, I don't necessarily take this as him like being brutal and savage and pointing in their face and just kind of letting them have it. Um, This is, to me, a statement of pity. Um, Because they're prisoners. They are. Any time that we spend our time cleaning the outside of the cup and not the inside, the outside of our body, trying to prune and make it all perfect and act like everything's okay and act like everything's fine, um, we know what we're doing. Uh, and we're prisoners. Because how many of us, if we were to really be honest about things going on inside of us, are terrified we'd be rejected, we'd... Uh, we'd end up alone. Um, We'd be run out of family or church or whatever. And we're terrified. And Jesus says, when you do this, you're putting a mask in front of your face. Nobody can see what's really going on. Um, And the fact is, um, this is... I I don't think necessarily when people are putting up the facade that they're doing it maliciously. I think we do this because we actually plan on being that person for everyone. And so we we act like we have it all together. We act like um, um, we understand life. We understand our faith. We understand how to raise children. We understand how to be a spouse. We understand. We, We put it all together like everything's great. And I don't think we're trying to lie to people. I think we're trying to become these things. And so we've created this phrase, fake it until you make it. There's a phrase people say all the time. Um, really, once you start faking it, you're a prisoner until you make it. Absolute prisoner. You can't be honest. Especially if you faked it to get a job. You're trapped. You can't be honest. Um, and it's sort of like Jesus looks at them and he says... He says... What if, what if we were just honest about who we were, about our shortcomings, about our desires, about our desperate longings for, for, for your approval? What if you went to somebody and you said, hey, I'm going to start being honest with you and I'm going to start with this. I've just been seeking your approval for years. That's all I want. I just I, I want to know that, that you think highly of me and that's all I've chased after. And I'm a prisoner to that. Um, and what if we were just honest? I bet we would, we would actually receive freedom. 
What if, what, what if we could be honest and say, look, I'm really bitter about this thing that happened a long time ago, and I'm just going to put it out there and tell you. What if we were honest about, look, um, sometimes, I, sometimes I hate being a parent, and I'm exhausted, and I'm tired, and I, I wish there was something else um, that could sort of, that could, some different way I could, I could live my life, but I can't seem to get it together. And it looks around me like everyone else has it together, and I'm exhausted and terrified. Uh, and what if we just said, I, I, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm a good spouse. I don't feel like I can make my spouse happy. I, I, don't, I, don't know what I'm, I don't know how to be married. I don't know how to live my life to serve someone else. Um, what if we were honest about, I, I, I don't know what I believe anymore. I'm struggling in my faith. Um, I've read these things I can't unread, and here I am. There it is. Instead of being hypocrites, walking around, acting like it's all good and it's all together. Uh, and what if we released ourselves from these prisons that we were in? And what if we were entirely one thing? That's what integrity is. Integrity is not... We, we make everything about making the right decision. Integrity comes from the word integer, which means one. Integrity is when one person is one thing all the time. What you see is what you get when they're alone, when they're with people. They're just always the same, and they're honest about who they are. Part of, part of the church is this idea of being a community of confession, about being honest with our struggles and our problems. And in the church, we should be able to be honest. There's too many churches are full of people who, who are terrified to admit who they are. Jesus came to set us free from that. There's this particular passage where, the one I read earlier, where this guy's standing up and he's praying um, in Luke 18 about how, thank God that I, I fast twice a week and thank God that I have all this stuff going on. And we know when we see people doing stuff like this, we know they're hiding something and they're terrified. We know that. When they're trying to, just so you all know, everything's great. We're like, oh no, what's wrong? That's our natural reaction. And then there's this other guy praying next to him. And the passage goes on to say that this guy was even afraid to approach the altar. And he's on his knees and he's wearing sackcloth and ashes. And, he's, and he says, I'm not like that guy. I don't have it together. Uh, I'm a mess. I'm a sinner. Um, I'm greedy. I take advantage of people. I'm lustful. Um, and he's just honest. And Jesus says, which one of them was justified? The tax collector. The obvious thief. He's justified. Even though he's a sinner, even though he's admitted he's done all these things wrong, he's one thing and he's honest and he's confessing. He's pure in heart. That's what this is about. It's about being pure in heart. It's, and the funny thing is, so we talk about, we tend to do things the opposite of scriptures, always. Scriptures teach this thing called sanctification. Sanctification is um, God looks at you and declares you holy and righteous and good and, and, lo- and loved. And this puts us on the journey to becoming these things through the work of the Spirit. This is all the Christian theology. Um, it's sort of, it, it carries this idea of like, uh, 10 years from now, I'm going to be more holy and more understanding and, and, and um, a closer follower and disciple of Christ than I was then because the Spirit is going to be constantly pushing me and convicting me. And so there's this idea of sanctification where we start here and God looks at you and says, here's what you are. Here's what I see. Here's what I see. And it puts you on this path here. What we do is we start over here and we say, hey, everyone, here's what I am. And we tell them, I'm successful. I have it together. But really, we're back there. And then we're trying to run to this. We do this differently. We declare ourselves clean on the outside, hoping to catch up. But the fact is, when we're honest and we're open, and God looks at us and says, 
I declare you clean on the inside. You're accepted. I see what you are. I love that. I embrace that. Let's walk together, and we begin to change and become more like Christ. This is called the doctrine of sanctification. Big fancy word. All it means is progress. It's about the journey of you towards health and goodness, towards Christ-likeness. So there's all kinds of... Um, um, there's all kinds of, of, of church theologians over the centuries that have written about this idea. Um, there's this guy, Augustine, and Augustine preaches this sermon where he talks about how this is about, uh, it's not about purity versus impurity. Impurity is not the opposite of purity. The opposite of purity, and even according to Augustine and myself, uh, the opposite of purity is hypocrisy. It's pretending to be something that you're not. Somebody who is pure is one thing. Somebody who is the opposite of pure is a hypocrite, and they can't be honest with you. And then he writes this. He says, only he who has shrugged off human praise and in his life is concerned just to please God, who searches our conscience, that is a pure heart. And so the idea is that on the inside, I'm pursuing one thing. I'm a follower of Christ. And so while I live in a nation that will be calling for my commitment to them and my loyalty to the nation and my loyalty to all these earthly things and jobs and governments and money and all these things, I follow one thing and it's Christ. And, and, and oftentimes following Christ might line up with some of these things of these other people. There'll be a lot of times though when my following of Christ will not line up and I'll just have to say no. And this is where faith comes in because I trust I, Jesus is Lord. I have faith that the way of Jesus is the right way. Um, that's a way to bring about reconciliation is to allow myself to be poured out, not through getting up and wielding a sword. And so there's these specific things all through our lives that we should look at and say, this is the way of Christ. This way seems logical, it does, but this is the way of Christ. And the inside, I'm just going to seek the good, which is Jesus. And then you have this guy, uh, Kierkegaard. Um, Kierkegaard wrote this book called Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. At some point, all followers of Jesus should, read, should at some point read this book. It's a heavy read, um, beautiful book. It's not even that long. Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing by Soren Kierkegaard. Um, he's the father of existentialism. Um, and this book has been translated from German, so find a good translation, an easy to read one, and grasp this, because the whole idea of this book, it's right in the title. What is purity of heart? That's to will one thing. And then the rest of the book is, what are some other things we tend to will that are not the good, that are not Christ? And he opens them all up, and one of them is fascinating. He says this, he says, the one who desires the good for the sake of the reward does not will one thing, but is double-minded. To will one thing, therefore, is therefore to will the good without considering the reward. Um, and oftentimes, we assume uh, by following Jesus, making all the right decisions, we're going to receive a, a, an earthly sort of reward. There's going to be praise. Things are going to be successful. It has to work because I'm doing the right thing. Right, Jesus? So the Bible was written by a bunch of people who followed Christ um, and things went really bad for them. So no. And if, you, if you're seeking Christ because of some kind of reward in this world, um, you're really double-minded. The idea of, of following Christ in life um, is to bring in the kingdom of God here. It's not for you. It's for the world. Good news is not for you. It's for everyone. As a follower of Christ, 
people should be blessed by your presence. The idea of being an Israelite was that you are a nation that's going to bless all the other nations. And so it's good news for everyone that comes through you. And so when Jesus says, pure, um, when Jesus says um, blessed are those, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, we get to the end of it. And like, There's the reward. Uh, blessed are the pure in heart, those who in their heart seeking one thing and are honest and are not hiding it, Blessed are they, and what is the blessing? They're going to see God. So what does that mean? Is that talking about the afterlife? No, it's not actually. It's talking about now as well. Um, So let's look at it like this. When you clean the outside of the cup, when you spend your life sort of managing how people look at you, um, what do you see when you look around? Well, you, you tend to see everyone as a threat to you. Everyone's a threat. Everyone um, is a threat to that job you want, that house you want, that car you want. Everyone is sort of a threat to that life that you want. Uh, You see uh, everything as a battle because you've got to maintain this thing. And and how many times have you been up at night worrying that people are going to find out who you are? How many times do you go to work every day and you're like, I don't know what I'm doing? And you're just pretending like you do. Um, How many times... Do we walk into a place and suddenly start managing our image for people? Um, when you purify the outside, you see the enemy. The word accuser, that's the word we translate as the devil. That's the idea of it whispering in your ear, telling you all the ways that you're not good enough, all the ways that God could never love you, all the things that you've done wrong. When you spend your time cleaning the outside of the cup, that's what you see everywhere you look. But let's say you clean the inside of the cup. Um, what are you going to see? When you purify the inside, when you make all of your life and the inside is about one thing, uh, you see everything as a gift. If your only desire is for the good of others around you, those people actually become a gift. They become a blessing in your life. Um, every day when you wake up starts to become this thing that you're thankful for. You, you tend to look around and say, God, thank you for life. Thank you for the gift of breath. Thank you for my ability to walk. I can look around and see there's other people that don't have this particular ability, thank you. And your heart is broken for people and you reach out to them and you want to serve them. Uh, you start to see everyone as beloved by God. You start to look around and, you, and, and, and see all these people um, who are children of God who need something that you have to offer them. That's a gift. To serve is a gift. Um, basically what you see is the divine. You see God. You are in the presence of God. And it all comes through confession and honesty Integrity, being one thing, having your heart focused on one thing. Jesus regularly talks about how you can't have two masters. You can't serve both God and, and money. Replace money with, with fame. Uh, replace, mo- replace money with all of, the, all of the idols that we have today. You can't serve God and that thing. You can't. Um, and it's for your own good that you're being told this. Don't imprison yourself. Be free. And then, and then there's all these passages in Scripture where the apostles are writing about, uh, about being double-minded. How, don't be double-minded. Don't do it. That's not what life is about. Life's about one thing. It's about the kingdom. It's about love. It's about, it's about the God of love who is drawing people to himself. Take part in that one thing. Don't get wrapped up in these other things. They don't matter in the end. A hundred years from now, nobody's going to be sitting around Talking, how, talking about how successful your career was. They're just not. And so when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, 
<clears throat> if we understand what this means, we find that it's true. And what we find is, it's not this overnight change. You can't just walk in and just suddenly be like, here I am, everybody, here's, here's all my junk, and just unload it on somebody one day, and they're just looking at you like, wow, where's all this coming from? <laughs> there's, this, there's this sort of commitment to like, um, I'm going to become daily a more honest person. Um, I'm going to become the daily, the, the kind of person that, that can be known. Don't you want to, I, I think about this all the time, because I have a lot of family members, and, and my wife's got a lot of family members that, that don't talk about things. There's things we don't talk about. Don't you want to be known before you die? Don't you want people to know who you are? Don't you, don't you think if people knew you, that knowing you and your bravery and your honesty would somehow impact them for the positive to become more healthy? That maybe they'd see some things in you, they're like, you're struggling with that? I struggle with that. Why can't we be honest? Why don't we let each other be honest? The blessing of being pure in heart is that we can see God. We think we're going to see um, the devil. We think, we think they're going to accuse us and kick us out, but they're not. Because God is present in that, in this honesty. And so we're going to take communion. Um, communion is something we do every single week. Uh, communion service, you guys can go ahead and, and take the elements and spread around the room. While we're taking communion today, why don't we contemplate, spend some time sort of in meditation upon these things and think about the things that, um, things where, where we could move towards an honest posture. Think about, try to, try to locate a few things where like you, you, you set yourself up as this thing because you hope to be there one day. But everyone thinks you're already there. What if you're exposed? And so why don't we start to get out in front of these things? Why don't we be honest and say, look, I've been pretending to be this because that's what I, I desperately want to be. So I want to let you know I'm not, I'm not there. And maybe we could just start with some people that we trust and spend some time in confession and receive those confessions. Not necessarily today, although if you would like to do it today, that's fine. This is a great time to do it. Um, but we need to move towards purity of heart because too many of us are wearing these masks. It's not healthy. It doesn't bring about the kingdom. It doesn't bring about healing for anyone, not even you. And so let's pray. Father, thank you for these people, for this day. Thank you for these, uh, these ancient words. Bless us all. Teach us to... Uh, to be more honest every day. May that, may that pull us more quickly towards our sanctification. Teach us that the path to becoming those things we want to be, it runs straight through honesty. It runs straight through confession. Shape us to be like you. Thank you. In your name, amen. Take some time.